chapter 3. Uh, should I do this now? Let's get this out now. Oh. Oh, that one there. Hope this stays up. What page should we do? Page 8. Pretty one. And a bit of blue tech. Paul has spent the last two chapters of this letter to the church in Rome beating the same drum. Beating the same drum to say we are all sinners. And he's been speaking to a different audience, he's speaking about a different audience each time in chapter 1, chapter 2 and now chapter 3. Am I definitely on? Am I coming through? Yeah, as long as I'm coming through, I don't know if I'm coming out the speakers, that's all. And what he's been doing is trying to make sure we get the message. That all of us are in the same boat. None of us get away with it. None of us get off scot-free. None of us can think, well, at least I'm not like that. You know, in uh, is it TV shows, they tend to do um, uh, the beginning of each episode, previously on 24, previously on Designated Survivor. There's, there's a previously on The King's Revolution, just a reminder of chapter 1, chapter 2, it's easy to point the finger at certain things that other people do. It's easy to judge others. It's easy to be blind to where we place our trust. But we end up missing the crucial fact that we are all adrift and we are all broken. So Paul, right in chapter 1, he's talking about the non-Jews and said they've exchanged God's glory for something. They end up worshipping men, man-made images, animals. Even the Jews end up doing it, the golden calf. He's saying you end up worshipping these kind of statues, pagan idols, you're worshipping something else and ignorant of who God is. And he said, you've got no excuse. And we still do it today. We worship money, sex, power, career, self, body image, whatever it might be. We worship things. We worship the created rather than worshipping the creator. So he's saying, chapter 1, non-Jews have no excuse. You're lost. But this is in chapter 2, even the moralists. Here I've got someone writing out, I, I am a good person, I am a good person, I am a good person. Just trying to be, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good, I'm going to be good. But moralism. He's saying in chapter 2, you've got no excuse. You can judge other people because they're not as good as you or you feel guilty because you're not as good as that person. Always being good, being good. So moralists, you've got no excuse. And he spells it out. It's this whole court case. He's providing evidence for the judge, isn't he? This whole kind of... Uh, a case for the prosecution. So moralists, you've got no excuse. You too are lost. And then the end of chapter 2 and now into chapter 3, he then turns to the Jews and goes, you might be thinking, phew, got away with it. He's saying, you Jews, you're without excuse. God gave you the law. God gave you the revelation. And what I, I, I thought I brought and bring my car manual. The car manual is a guideline for how my car should flourish well, written by the Creator. If you're going to use this, this is how you do it. This is how it works. This is how it operates. Here's the do's and here's the don'ts. Here's the dangers. Here's the things to avoid. Here's how to make it work properly. And God gave the law to shape a society to say, here's how to live in a way that honours me. And we'll talk about the law in a minute. And he says to the Jews, you guys, you're just as lost. Even when he was talking about circumcision in the, in, at the end of chapter 2, he's saying circumcision doesn't fix. Just because you're circumcised doesn't mean you're sorted. You're missing the point. Circumcision was a private reminder to the individuals that they belong to him. It's not a public 
Hopefully you're wearing clothes. So it's not a public demonstration. If you're, circumcision is a private sign that you, you belong to someone else. It's not a public thing. And Paul was, Paul was just saying, having ritual genital surgery doesn't mean you still don't need heart surgery. Don't rely on the do's and don'ts. What they did was turn the law into their saviour. I missed the God who gave it in the process. So in the light of that, let's read from the beginning of chapter 3. And I'll come back to each of these in a while. Chapter 3, verse 21, and we'll go down to verse 23. So then, goes, what advantage is the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? What's the point of it all? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. As it is written, though you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Or speak in a human way? By no means. For then how could God judge the world? But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. He keeps quoting from the Jewish scriptures, our Old Testament. Uh, they use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, and here it comes, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me just pray for a sec. Lord, this is a dense chapter as most of Romans seems to be, Lord, but we know there is some amazing golden truth in here that we do not want to walk away from and, not, and miss. Lord, will you just speak to each of us this morning through your word. It is a living word. Will you penetrate our hearts and just enlighten us to something we need to recognise, need to realise and need to, need to walk in the light of. So come and have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul, he's ramming the point home once again. And from this point now, it's going to change. From next week onwards, halfway through chapter 3, it will change. But before diving into five and a half chapters of how we can be saved, he wants to make sure we get the point, that the readers and us get the enormity of our perilous position, this problem with sin. It all sounds quite dark, reading through that, about their throats and their lips and their mouths and their feet. It's all hor horrendous, dark stuff. It sounds a bit dark, but the point is this. I like to think I'm an okay bloke who's quite nice to people. 
However, something has loved to fester in my spiritual DNA, something that can be covered up, something that can be repressed, but would always pop up at inopportune moments. <laughs> There's something there throughout my life that can only be renewed by my creator, the one who put that DNA, that spiritual DNA, if you like, in place. There's something I can't fix. It's deep inside my very fibre, my very being, that keeps popping up. There's something there. And this is what sin is. And this is why my first point is about dis differentiating the difference between sin and sins. They're two slightly different things. You see, sin, effectively with a capital S, if you like, it's a thing. Sin is not the naughty things. Sin is the marks against us. Sin, sin is the long list of choices and actions we've all, we all know we've done, and many of which we'd rather nobody else ever finds out about. We've all got those. Those are just the signs and symptoms of the issue at hand. They are sins. They are the results of the problem. The problem is sin, with a capital S. Sin is the enslaving power beneath it all that drives us to do these things. And from chapter 5 onwards... If you'll notice in Romans, Paul stops talking about sins, stops talking about the acts, and starts talking about sin, the power that's enslaved us to do those things. He, he, he changes later on. He talks about sin enslaving us and about us being set free from sin. He talks about sin bringing death and sin no longer having a grip on those who belong to Jesus. It's there in all of us, this grip, this slavery. Have you ever noticed that inner voice that wants to do something you know will harm you, will damage you, will harm others, will harm your relationships? We've all felt that little teasing gone. You'll love it. You know it's wrong and you know not just that it's naughty, but you know it will harm something or someone, but you still can't struggle to resist. There's that fight. There's that urge. Or even that buzz to get involved in something that at the time may not be consciously a bad thing, may seem a bit innocuous, but you end up regretting. <laughs> Why did I do that? didn't even occur to me at the time. It's there. And even our thoughts, which are allegedly private. <laughs> God's listening in. But even if it's just between us and God, these thoughts, these fantasies, even they end up resulting in choices later on if they're left to fester. Jesus says in Matthew 15, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. You can have these thoughts, you can have these fantasies, that's how we end up doing things that we know we shouldn't be doing. That the, the thing that's got a grip on us, that stirs that up, is sin. That's the, that's the thing. Sin has a steely grip on every human being who's ever entered this world. See the difference between sin and sins. Does that help? But then what Paul's doing here is making sure that we all understand there is no wriggle room. No wriggle room for any of us. The Jews, he's now, he's now addressing them. Because you could sit back and read chapters 1 and 2 as a Jew and go, yeah, got away with that. And he's like, hang on a minute. <laughs> You'll go. The Jews were in a privileged position. They had an advantage. Verse 2, what does he say? To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. They were given his guidelines to a shaping of a society that would honour him, would bless him, would look different to the pagan societies around them and go, these are my holy set-apart people and their lives flourish because they live this way. They were given this. And of all the peoples in all the world, they had it made. 
They had living God revealing himself to them in jaw-dropping victories, remarkable miracles in freedom from slavery and exile from other nations twice in their history and in specific shaping of their society and lifestyle through the law. But they squandered it. Time and time and time again they thought they knew better. God had given them the law, revealing his purposes and his intent for them and ultimately the nations, but they turned that into their saviour. If we do all these do's and don'ts and make sure we don't slip up, we'll be okay. They were looking at the gift and not the giver. So why did God give give them the law? See, the law was a means of demonstrating what it means to be a people who are different and set apart for his glory, but also to show them what they're really like. Think about British law. You think about what that tells us we mustn't do, and there'll be consequences if we do. Don't murder. Don't steal. That corruption and fraud and libel and abuse. And when you realise that's telling us what we as a UK society are capable of, that's quite sickening, isn't it? That's what we, as a people, are capable of. Our British law shows us what we are capable of and it's pretty dark. And what's the alternative? A free-for-all? No law? I suggest that would be even worse. <laughs> but law shows us what we're capable of. Even coming up with the law, there can be arguments. You try and get people in a room to define what we need as a law for Herm Bay to function well. The people in Herne Bay need to live this way, right? Let's come up with some rules. There will be arguments. It will get quite heated. They'll be all right on some of the black and white bigger stuff. Don't murderise each other. Okay, that'd be easy. But when it comes to the greyer stuff, it will get quite heated, I'm sure. I don't know if you ever looked at the Herne Bay chatter group on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. It gets so negative and so cynical and it's quite nasty very, very, very quickly. Particularly when you're talking about the young people of Herne Bay. Whenever that subject comes up on a post on Herne Bay Chatter, people are quick to jump on about how horrible these brutes have been and how they're acting and blah, blah, blah. And some of it is fair observation of some behaviour. I'm not dismissing that. But the answers aren't helpful. The replies aren't helpful. And if anybody ever tries to stick up for these kids, in some ways we have to consider this and we have to consider that. They get jumped on very, very quickly. Even when it just comes down to how our young people should behave in Herne Bay, it gets very heated very, very quickly. Rules or no rules both just highlight man's depravity. They highlight the issue of sin in our hearts. It proves our inability to be pure and undefiled. And so Paul's saying to the Jews, you've even been given the law, the holy, perfect law by God, and you can't even keep that. You're just acting like hypocrites. You say this and then you do that. You can't keep pure and holy and you've been given God's oracles. And then effectively he's turning back to the non-Jews, to the Gentiles and goes, well if they can't keep pure with God's revealed truth in their hands, then how can you? See, there is no wriggle room when it comes to the grip that sin has on us as human beings. So Paul then, right at the beginning of this passage, starts positing some questions. Just imagining what people might say in response. Verse 3. What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? He's saying basically, well, if some are unfaithful, then God definitely is unfaithful because he let them wander off. Turning it back on God, isn't he? 
No, God is unrelenting in his goodness and he's rock steady in his promises. If I make a pact with a partner and that person breaks that act, who's responsible for the breaking of it? Is it me? It was them, wasn't it? And Paul's saying, what a ridiculous question. But some people do think like that. Well, God's unfaithful because he let us wander off. It's ridiculous. There's, there's a responsibility involved. And then in verse 5, he comes up with another question. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Hey, just makes him look better. Well, that's like saying, yeah, well, if my wrongdoings make God look purer, then I might as well continue. See? Wriggle room. Well, no, that's like me deciding to, I don't know, me saying I might as well stop taking care of myself, stop washing, let my teeth fall out, and then whenever I stand next to my wife, she shines all the more brightly. That's ridiculous, isn't it? You also end up divorced. That's what he's saying here. What a ridiculous notion. Well, we might as well just continue so it makes him look better. That is just ridiculous, and he just sweeps it aside. It's dangerous. Dangerous thinking. Looking for wriggle room is dangerous. Verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? It's kind of furthering of the same question. That just skirts the issue of responsibility and justice. If our wrong standing just gives him more glory, then he's wrong to punish us. Hey, have that one, God. That's crazy. That's like wagging the finger at the judge in court because you think you know better. That won't get you a reprieve. <laughs> you probably get a stronger sentence. We cannot play mind games with God. We, we can do it without realising, but it's just dangerous, dangerous ground. To the ignorant, we can say, well, we didn't know better, we were just worshipping something else, we were just focusing our worship on something else. Well, like I said the other week, I can be breaking the speed limit in a 30 mile an hour zone and not see the signs. Even though I'm ignorant of what the speed limit is, I've still broken the law and the policeman can do what he wants with me. Ignorance is not an excuse. It's not my fault, I didn't know. It doesn't matter. You're still not holy. Or the moralists. I must be a good person. I'm going to be a good person. I'm going to keep trying. Keep trying. If I'm really God, I'll, if I'm really good, I'll convince God to let me off. I'll earn enough brownie points. Who decides what's good and what's wrong? There's enough arguments about that in the world today about how you live, who you sleep with, what you do with your body, and so on and so forth. There's arguments about that, what's right and what's wrong. Who decides that? Well, I suggest the one who is perfectly pure knows what isn't. Let him decide. So even the moralist doesn't get away with it. But even the religious as well. He owes me. I've done all this. I've done all that. I've done it the right way. I've crossed the T's and dotted the I's. And Paul's saying, there's always at least one point in there you'll slip up on. You won't be able to keep all of it. You're human. It's not going to happen. It just shows you what you're capable of. So on the back of that, Paul is just ramming it home Verse 10, what does he say? How many are righteous? None. None are righteous. It means upstanding, being right and perfect before God. None is righteous. No, not one. And he says it again. No one understands. And again, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. All. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. So have you got it yet? Well, straight in the back of that, he goes into seven back-to-back -back indictments from Jewish scripture, from verse 13, saying what, how much sin has stained our very beings. It starts off with our throats. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. Our throats pull down. We just destroy with guttural desires that we express. It just comes out from deep down. 
things we say, we have a go at people and we just wish we, you can't put your words back, can you? They just come out. Tongues that deceive, isn't it? Verse 13 as well. We can manipulate with our tongues too easily. We can soften people up so we can use them to their advantage, even if we don't realise we're doing it. Butter people up, can't we? The venom, the venom of asps is under their lips. Lips that spread poison. We can all, at times, be liable to gossip. That can spread things that often aren't true, sometimes. Verse 14, their mouth, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. It's easy to judge rather than bless. It's easy to be negative rather than positive. In the ambulance service, the amount of... I wasn't a bad paramedic, but the amount of complaints I got compared to letters of thanks... It wasn't actually, we all got it. It wasn't because we were all rubbish at our job. It's because people are quick to put pen to paper when they've got a problem and they're upset about something than they are to simply say thank you. There's something in us that we just, we could, I'm going to have a word with them. I'm going to have a word with that shop assistant, the way she spoke to me. But we don't go up to and go, thank you for being so kind. We don't, do we? There's a tendency. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. We're quick to follow paths of misery. We don't even realise until we're halfway down the track. We can go wandering off on things that tickle our fancy, not realising the misery we leave in our wake when it comes to other people because we're putting ourselves first. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Our eyes can gaze in lust, can gaze in envy, can gaze in discontentment. None of that brings God any glory. There's no reverence. There is no wriggle room. And to look for wriggle room is an offence to his mercy. It sounds heavy, and it sounds in your face, but the reality is, even our best acts are still tainted by sin. Isaiah 64, verse 6, says, and it's, been, it's a sanitised version in our Bible, modern day Bibles, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That polluted garment, the actual language there is talking about a used sanitary towel. To God's eyes, even our good deeds are stained and offensive. Why? Because of the motive of the heart, what's going on underneath, why we're doing it. Until you know God, you can't have a heart that's seeking to please him because you don't know him. And until then, everything you do is worshipping yourself, worshipping other people, worshipping lust, worshipping envy, worshipping something else. It's motivated by something else. There's a brilliant show on um, Netflix at the moment called The Good Place. We were talking about this last night. The Good Place is a fantastic show. It's a comedy show. And basically, it just starts off with the, uh, in the first episode, starts off with this um, young lady called Eleanor Shellstrop, and she's in a waiting room, just the very first thing, she's in a waiting room. And Ted Danson, remember Ted Danson from Cheers? He's still going strong. He sticks his head through the door and goes, Ellie, would you like to come in? She goes, okay. And he goes, welcome to The Good Place. And she goes, uh, quick question. What am I doing here? Where is this place? How did I get here? He goes, you died. She goes, oh, okay. He says, welcome to the afterlife. And uh, she goes, okay. I don't remember dying. So okay. So it was quite an embarrassing situation, so we've, uh, we've wiped that from your memory. So she then asks him to repeat what happened, and he starts spelling out how she died. It's quite embarrassing for her. And she's like, okay, I've heard enough. She goes, anyway, is this place, is it, mm, or is it, mm? He goes, no, 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 this is the good place. You're in the good place. Only one in a million people get to come to the good place. Okay, and he starts describing the reasons why she's in the good place. She's built enough, it's, it's a moralist tale, but 
But she's built up enough credit by being such a good person, by getting in, being a lawyer and getting innocent people off death row and working with refugees in Africa and all this kind of stuff. So, oh, yes, she goes. Later on, she gets to meet her soulmate. That's another part of the story. So it's only a few minutes into the first episode. And this basically sets up the premise because then Ted Danson leaves and she confesses to this new friend of hers. She goes, I'm not meant to be here. They've got my name right but I've never worked with refugees in Africa. I've never got innocent people off death row. They've got this wrong. So she spends the rest of the first season trying not to get found out. Eventually, she gets found out. And here's the thing. She has to go to the bad place because that's where she belongs. And the real Eleanor Shellstrop will be brought back from being tortured in the bad place and she's going to be brought to the good place. She's going to swap them. But some of her friends now really like her, these people that she's met, and they're trying to work out a way, how can Ellie stay? And the answer is... If she can build up enough credit in the next 24 hours before the person from the bad place comes to collect her, she'll be all right. And at the moment, they're looking at her counter. She's on minus 4,000 credits, minus 4,000 points. And to get enough to stay in the good place, she needs to get one plus 1.2 million. Okay? So she's on minus 4,000. She's got 24 hours to do really good stuff in the good place to get plus 1.2 million. So she's opening the door for people. She's standing at the restaurant, letting her, after you, no, no, after you. No, no. Come, on, come on in, yeah, after you. She, about 300 people go through the door, trying to rack up enough points. And she, no, this isn't enough. These are small acts. I need to do some really, really big acts. So I need to put on the gala. I'm going to put on the best party the good place has ever seen. She has a big gala for everyone and everyone's invited. has a lovely time. Thank you so much, Ellie. And she goes, no, I need to get to the nugget of stuff here. I need to really rack up my points. 1.2 million is going to be a long haul. I haven't got very long to do this. So she ends up having a bit of a forum, a bit of a, a meeting with the people she's wronged and asks them to tell her how she's wronged them so she can apologise, so she can repent. So she even goes through this raw process of being shown what she's really like. By the end of it, she checks her points. Minus 4,000. Not one of them has moved. It hasn't gone up at all. She's like, I've done all these good things. And it wasn't until after a little while she comes to the realisation, my motivation was in the wrong place. I was doing all these good deeds, but my motives were wrong. I was, wasn't doing them because I wanted to do good. I was doing them because I wanted to stay here. And the same for us. All the good things we can do, until you know God, you can't do it to his glory. So you're doing it for something else. You're doing it to appease someone. You're doing it to appease yourself. You're doing it to feel better because of what you used to do in your younger adulthood and you're trying to make up for it. You're trying to uh, win someone over so you can be their friends, you can get to be in their circle and benefit from that. You're trying to do it to convince people you're, you're not a bad person. You're doing it to, out of fear of man. You're doing it for other reasons, to get something by stealth. Even slightly, that kind of motive is there. That doesn't honour God. All our righteous deeds, as Isaiah says, are like filthy rags. Are like dirty undergarments. And so Paul is just saying, none of us get off scot-free. There is no wriggle room. Whether, chapter 1, the non-Jews have no excuse, they're doomed. The moralists have no excuse, they're doomed. And now the Jews, even they have no excuse, they're doomed. For us, being given the Bible doesn't save us. No guarantee we're saved, knowing the Bible inside out, even knowing its entire innards, or being able to articulate deep arguments within its pages, doesn't mean you're saved. Just in a few verses previous, when Paul was pointing out that circumcision only pierces the flesh, for the same as us, Bible knowledge only pierces the intellect. 
It's God who pierces the heart and we have to let him do some heart surgery. <sighs> Heavy, isn't it? Thankfully, the bad news means good news. The bad news means good news. You see, this isn't just about everybody has done naughty stuff. This is ultimately about that final verse where we stop mid-passage because the good stuff's coming next week. Uh, verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the nugget. It's not about everybody's done naughty things. It's about we've all fallen short of his glory because we're all under the grip of something else until we find that rescue in Jesus. All of us have exchanged his glory and we're worshipping something else. All of us are worshipping something broken and twisted, some, our own guidelines, our own rule book for being good, or living by his guidelines and missing the heartbeat of what they're there for. All of us are enslaved to another power and need rescue. And outside of Christ, we don't find it. The bad news here is actually good news. And here's the thing. It means we are all in the same boat. Because the, the alternative is quite horrendous. Because otherwise that would mean that some are safe and others aren't, merely by birth or ability or intellect. What if you weren't born in the right tribe? Or weren't born in the right bloodline? Or you were born in the wrong postcode? Or you were given different parents? Or you weren't intelligent enough to grasp the right ethics? Or you weren't given the right education? Thankfully, that's not a means to being saved. Praise Jesus that we're all in desperate need of a rescuer and praise him even more that he is that very person. See, Christianity is utterly unique in that while all other faiths or places or methods where people place their faith in, all those things are about us doing the work. They're all about us repairing the hole. They're all about us clearing the debt, all about us papering over the crack, all about us making ourselves well. And they never come up trumps. Christianity declares that the king himself sparked a revolution upon the cross when he took our place. And in that moment, he didn't just shed his blood so we could be forgiven. It was about releasing us from the grip of sin and death. There was a cosmic moment when he broke the power of sin over anyone who places their trust in him and not something else. It was a defining moment in the war where the war was won. That was a victory on that cross. It wasn't just Jesus being the lamb so you can repent and, and say sorry. That's part of it. But that's missing the entire point about Jesus rescuing us from the grip of sin. He stood in our place so justice might be served and so that sin's sickness might be endured on our behalf and a decisive healing to our brokenness might be wrought from within that suffering. That's what he did. He suffered so you don't have to. He died and rose again so you might live. Whoever you are, whether you're blind to his existence, ignorant of who he is, chapter 1. That doesn't excuse your guilt. Or whether you're convinced you can build moral credit and be, called, and be a better person to save yourself, that doesn't erase your debt. That doesn't twist his arm. Or whether you're a religious person and you're relying on your culture's lifestyle and traditions to keep you safe from judgment, just like the Jews or just like some people who call themselves Christians. Knowledge and routines do not cleanse your spiritual DNA. Think about it. It doesn't happen. 
The truth is we are all lost and we're all in need of a rescuer. The, great new, the good news is that rescuer is God himself. And now over the next five and a half chapters, we're going to find out what, quite what Jesus has done about it. I'm very excited. <laughs> but just turn to John chapter 8 as I finish here, because I don't want to steal John's thunder for next week. John chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus is saying to the Jews themselves, he's saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You see that? So he's, he's, he's talking about an act and a power there. The two, two words sin there mean two different things. Truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin does the act. It's because they're a slave to sin, to the power of sin, with a capital S. So if you're a slave, it says you're not family. Your fate is fragile and you're in clutches of an evil master. You can't wriggle out of that. You need to be redeemed. You need someone to pay the price so you can be released. But then he goes on to say, the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the, the son himself sets you free, you will be free indeed. If you're family, you get to stay forever. A slave is not a member of the family their fate is sealed. A son gets to stay. And it's Jesus who makes that change. Let me just pray. Jesus, thank you that your word is brutally honest about who we are and doesn't big us up. It just sheds your light on the state of our hearts when we live outside of you. Lord, I thank you that you are willing to demonstrate to us the bad news so that we can recognise how glorious the good news is when placed alongside it. Lord, we thank you so much that you came that we might be rescued from the grip of sin. You came that we might be washed clean. You came that our spiritual DNA might be renewed and you, the creator, the only one who can do that, decided that would be good. Lord, we thank you so much. Lord, help us, each one of us, as we struggle with temptation to recognise it's not just about, I don't know, adrenaline ticking around our bodies, chemicals and getting a rush. It's about a grip of sin that only you can release us from. Lord, help us to recognise what's going on in the world around us. Help us to glorify you as being the answer to all these things. Thank you that we don't get saved just by being in the right bloodline or the right postcode. But this is available to all of us. Whether we are Jewish, whether we are non-Jewish, whether we're clever, whether we're not so clever, whatever it is. Whether we're young, whether we're old. No matter where we live, where we grew up, who our parents were. Your rescue is available to each and every one of us. Thank you, Lord, that you love the world. That you came and died for us. So we celebrate you as our great rescuer. Help us to learn more of the next few weeks, but let it even start now and this week. Let us celebrate the rescue that you have done in each of us who have placed our trust in you. We love you and we celebrate you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <laughs>